0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18, we see something interesting. We've been studying over the last few weeks the, the plan that God has to pour out His judgment upon the five enemies of God and of His people. And in, in chapter 18, we see something of a poetic description of that, a future poetic description of what that fall will be like. And And it's filled with lament. This is very much similar to what we see in the Old Testament prophets as they lament uh, either the the sins of the people of God or what God is doing in the world. And we see that uh, directed at Babylon the Great. So what I'd like to do is I'm just going to read, we're going to break it up into two weeks. I'm going to read the first eight verses of this. If you would just follow along in your copy and then I'll pray for us. And then we'll study it together. So, Revelation chapter 18, starting in verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. A haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, "'Come out of her, my people.'" Lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning." Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. This is God's Word. So let's pray together, and then we'll study it and try to understand it more. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for this opportunity to come and to remember your grace, to sing your praises, to be confronted with your holiness as we sing and as we read from your word, and then to respond in an appropriate way. The only appropriate way that we can respond to your holiness as fallen and sinful human beings is to confess our sin and our need of you and look to you for the remedy for our sins, that remedy that you have provided through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross in our place. And we come to remember that and to celebrate that, but we've also come to to study Your Word, to hear Your Word preached so that we can see and know, so that we can be changed from one degree of glory to another as we behold what You have revealed to us. And so I pray that You would empower me as Your servant with Your Spirit to to declare your word, to explain your word, to teach your word. And I trust that you will apply it to our hearts in the way that it needs to be applied. I pray that you would convict us of sin where we need to be convicted of sin, that you would comfort us where we need to be comforted by the gospel, that you would accomplish your purpose today among your people through the preaching of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. In Genesis chapter 3, all the way back in the beginning of the book, we learn that as a result of Satan's work to tempt and deceive Adam and Eve, virtually all of humanity into sin, that God cursed Satan. God cursed the ancient serpent. And the curse that he Gives to the serpent, it goes like this. This is from Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. It says, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then he says this in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now that word enmity, which is part of the curse, that word enmity, it means to be in a state of hostility and strife. A deep and lasting conflict. That's the way that God describes the relationship between his people and Satan, our great enemy. Now theologians have have written on this, they've thought about this, and they, they often will describe the church as being in a militant state. Have you ever heard that? The church militant, usually in, in um, not contrast, but paired with the idea of the church triumphant. But the idea of the church militant, it refers to this battle between Christians and the forces of darkness that inhabit our world. The book of Revelation takes that idea and brings it out in full force. It, it makes it front and center, that battle between God and His people and the five enemies that we've been studying. The book of Revelation reveals that spiritual side of life, and it, it speaks directly to this conflict, the conflict that was, the conflict that is, and the conflict that is to come for those who follow Christ and face those five enemies. And among those enemies, as we've been studying, stands one particular enemy, the city of Babylon, which is the embodiment of worldliness on earth. Babylon has been described as the great city, the great prostitute, the great and immoral woman, the the great um, abomination, the great mother of all abominations. And here in chapter 18, an angel has come from heaven to announce that Babylon, this great seductive influence in the world, has fallen. Now there are two well-known cities in the book of the Revelation. Babylon is used quite a bit more than this other city, but there are two cities that dominate the book of the Revelation. Babylon, obviously, is the capital of the godless world, and then there is Jerusalem, or what we are going to come to understand in chapter 21 as New Jerusalem, which is the capital city of God and his people. And these two cities, if you will, as the the book unfolds, we see these two cities. We see one of them rising up and we see all of the destruction that she causes. We see all of the influence that she has. And yet we have this other city, the city of God's people, And these two are at enmity with one another. They are in this state of strife with one another. They are polar opposites. But one of the things that the the book tells us is that though these cities are prominent and powerful, one of them is going to live forever and the other one is certain to fall. And here in this chapter, we are going to see what that fall will be like. An angel has come to announce the destruction of Babylon and the angel has also come to warn the church to get out of the city so that we're not caught up in her collapse. So that's our task this morning, is to understand these two things. So let's study the book together. Let's go back. Keep your Bible open, if you will. We'll just walk our way through this text. Let's look back at verse 1 as we begin to understand what Babylon's coming destruction will be like. It says that after this, and that is after the vision that we've been studying, after this I saw another angel. Coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fall and fall, and Babylon the great. Now as we've been studying this book, we've seen this over and over. Angels come into the frame to reveal things, to explain things, to carry out God's purpose. Those angels don't get titles, they don't get names, but they are described in certain ways, and sometimes those descriptions will remind us of other things, or other beings. As this new angel enters the frame, we we learn that it's an angel that has great power, great authority, and great glory. That's a word that is generally associated with the presence of God, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and especially throughout the Revelation. And this description kind of reminds us of one of the angels that we saw all the way back in chapter 14, and you can turn there if you'd like, or you can just notate it. In in Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, we saw another angel coming down out of heaven. That's a good indication of where this angel dwells. This angel comes down out of heaven. This particular angel rode on a cloud, and he looked like the Son of Man. You may remember that, you may not but that's a description i believe not just of a nameless angel but of the lord jesus christ coming to bring particular judgment and to to usher in the harvest that we studied about back then this angel that we see here in Revelation 18 is also somewhat reminiscent of, based on the great voice with which he speaks, of what we saw about Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, where he was described to us in in the splendor of that passage, and and he spoke with a, a voice that was like the roaring of the mighty waters. Now, John doesn't tell us who this mighty angel is, so we shouldn't be dogmatic about it, but the exalted commission that he has to come and declare the fall of Babylon, the great city, and then the fact that he has this unique splendor it su- suggests to me once again that this is Lord, the Lord Jesus entering into John's vision. And his role is to announce the fall and the destruction of Babylon. And then, then the other angels that are going to accompany him are going to tell us about the lament that the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth, that they all have. But there is something that we've seen over and over as we've studied this book. John is leaning on other Old Testament prophetic language And he's drawing that language into his description that we see here, particularly in Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51 and Ezekiel chapter 27. Now, I don't assume that you're real familiar with Jeremiah 50 and 51 and Ezekiel 27. So let me just remind you what they're about. And in, in Jeremiah specifically, Jeremiah is prophesying the destruction of Babylon, the actual city of Babylon. And as he does so, he, he describes it in a very similar way to this. In Ezekiel chapter 27, the prophet Ezekiel is describing the destruction of the city of Tyre, which was another great and immoral city that persecuted the people of God, and he too describes it much like what we see here. In both of those cases, there was an announcement of the fall of the city. Fallen is Babylon, fallen is Tyre, and then the people of God were instructed to come out of the city so that they weren't caught up in its fall. Once again, John is taking from that language and he's, he's bringing it into our own context as we look to the future. Now it was often the case in the ancient Near Eastern world when, when God would declare judgment on a particular city and that judgment would fall, that the city was often allowed to remain. Sodom and Gomorrah is one of those cities that stands out. As well as the city of Jericho, the city was completely fell. But it was often the case that God would, would, would judge the city mainly in the people. And the city was allowed to remain. And John tells us that at the end of the days, we're going to see something like that happen. Because this city that influences the world greatly in immorality and sin and persecutes the church is finally going to face the judgment of heaven. But it's the people who will face that judgment. There's some sense in which the city will remain And you can see that in verse 2, because someone is going to inhabit that city, it just won't be humanity, right? And this is her hyperbolic language, right? This is not literal, this is hyperbolic, this is symbolic. And the point is, he says in verse 2, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean beast. Everything unclean. The unclean city is now just filled with unclean things. And the point is to say that the city will no longer be fit for human habitation. Only demons and unclean things would ever be found after the judgment of God is poured out. The unclean city is filled with more and more uncleanness. The picture, the symbolic nature of what he's telling us here is that this city is going to face utter devastation. And it would only be fit to be a prison of demons when all is said and done. In other words, Babylon is gone. Everything it stood for, everything it promoted, every bit of influence, every idea, every practice that it celebrated, absolutely destroyed, gone, fallen. And we already know this, right? We've been learning about this along the way. We know that the fate of this city of the world is to fall, but the angel reminds us why. Right. It reminds us what's going on. Look at verse 3. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her passion and her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. She was the great center of immorality. The mother of sin and abomination is what John has called her. Her pet sin was... And because I think this is in the future, you could even say her pet sin is sexual immorality. And she has dragged the the mighty men of the earth, the kings of the earth, and the world leaders into those same sins. And so many people, so many corporations, and so many individuals have grown rich by indulging in what she had to offer. They too are suffering as a result of her fall. And, and as we'll continue to study this uh, next week, we'll see that those merchants and those kings, they lament the death of their lover. They had put their hope in Babylon. They had put their hope in her ideology. They put her hope in, their hope in, in her practices and in her riches and all of those things. And now that she has fallen, they, they have seen her utterly destroyed and they are lamenting what they've seen. And it's an interesting vision because it doesn't show them lamenting their sins with her. They simply lament the fact that she is gone. It's like they've lost their lover. So they're not repentant over their sin. They're just sad they can't continue to do it. This vision shows sinful world mourning the loss of its wicked lover. It shows a grieving humanity yearning for the love that it lost. And of course, those kings, those merchants, those individuals, they represent people, real people who've given their love to the world, who put all their hope and their confidence in that broad way that leads to destruction, right? That's what this picture is all about. They set their hearts on the world, on wealth and on sinful pleasure, and it has been taken away. And don't forget that this letter is being written not to an unbelieving world, so to speak. It's been written to the church and it should serve as a warning for us. A warning that we should not, must not, cannot think that it's, it's okay for us as professing believers in Christ to compromise with the world, with Babylon, and indulge in her things and, and, and participate in her practices. The lure and promises that Babylon offers will in the end betray those who put their hope in her. That's the point. It reminds me of what Jesus says back in the Gospel of Mark. He says this in Luke and Matthew as well, but in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, He called the crowd to Him, which was His want. He would call the crowd, and He, and he called His disciples in close as well, and He said this, because this was a question on everybody's mind, and He says this, If you would come after Me, If you want to be my disciple, then deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Jesus just has a a way of cutting through all the confusion and saying, "There there is this one way to life, and it's through me. Everything else is going to lead you to destruction. But he goes on and he makes it clear what is at stake between choosing him or choosing the alternative. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul, Jesus asks. Then he goes on and he says this, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of Him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father and with the holy angels. Jesus makes it very clear. You can't have both. You can have Him, or you can have the world, but you cannot have both. And as Christians, as those who profess the name of Christ, those who put our hope in Christ and what He has accomplished for us, our devotion is a complete and sole devotion to Christ. And not a dabbling in the things of the world or the riches of the world or the pleasures of the world, but a commitment to Christ and His glory and His truth and His path. And the world is not going to give up. The world is not going to stop calling to us. The world is not going to stop tempting us. The world is not going to stop offering us money and sexual pleasure and power and influence and all of those things. But heaven calls for us to turn away from the world and to reject her empty promises. In fact, that's what we see in the very next verse. Look at verse 4 as we see this warning to the church. Then I heard, John tells us, another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Heaven is declaring come out. And heaven declares to my people, this is a reference to God calling for his children to come out and not participate, not to compromise with the world. This section reminds me of the episode back in, in Genesis, which I mentioned earlier when, when God sent angels to the city of Sodom to warn Lot about the judgment that was going to fall on that city. Y'all remember that story. It was an old story, and Lot had separated out from Abraham. They had chosen different um, pieces of land, and Lot gets caught up in the city. And we know that the city of Sodom was a city of great wickedness. And God sent angels to speak to Abraham, and and as a result of that, Abraham finds that those angels are now going to go to the city of Lot for, or not to the city of Lot, but to the city of Sodom. And and Abraham begins to barter with those angels, asking for God to be merciful. And well. Long story short, God sends those angels to Sodom and he, they come to Lot and they warn Lot to take your family and get out of the city. Take them now and get out of the city because the city was going to face fire and God didn't want those individuals to succumb to that particular destruction. And even though they eventually did leave, at least physically they left, the story tells us that Lot's wife Looked back longingly to the city that she just left, and as a result, she perished along with the city. The verb that John uses here, come out of her, it's not a suggestion, it's a command. Come out of her. This is a command for Christians to move out, to depart from Babylon so as not to be caught up in her sins, so as not to be caught up in the destruction that is to come. And once again, this is language that's similar to what we see in the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah said this to the children of Israel, leave Babylon, he says emphatically. Jeremiah told them, come out of her, my people, run for your lives. It's the same instruction being given here to the church. Now, what exactly am I saying, right? I don't believe that we're being commanded to leave every city, right? Every, get out of Dallas and go live out in the county. I I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't believe that what God is calling for us to do here is to live in isolation from the rest of the world. We're not about to start a new Reformed Baptist, you know, convent or monastery or anything like that. I don't believe that that's what God has called us to do. Maybe we can think about it this way. The danger is not the fact that we live in a city, but that the city lives in us. The point is that we must turn and flee from the temptations to sin that are associated with the city and the worldliness found therein. Jesus told his disciples when he sent them out to preach good news, do you remember that? He sent them out to preach and he said to them, he said, whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, I know this is not a perfect, you know, biblical illustration of what we're seeing here, but there's, there's a similarity to this. There, there will come a time in our lives as believers when we, make, we have to make really hard choices about where we're going to live, about how we're going to educate our children, about what job we're going to accept, about how we're going to spend our time and spend our money. And and we have to make those decisions not with a priority being placed on, on what is going to make us the most successful in this world, or what's going to make us most loved and liked by our neighbors and friends, but what is going to honor Christ the most. What is going to put us in a position to be faithful to the Lord Jesus and what He's called for us to do and and commanded us to be? We have to make these decisions. And we're being warned here in this text that one of those decisions has to include putting up a barrier in our heart and in our life to the influence that the world would have upon us. Those decisions should be made Placing a priority on our relationship to Christ and His Word and even His church. Even His church. We have no choice to live but to live in this world, but like Paul tells us, we are not to be of this world, right? Our allegiance is to Christ and to His kingdom, and that means that we have to break from the sins of the age, to reject the idols of our culture and the lifestyle of our time. Now last week, we learned from Jesus that our beliefs, remember we, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount and the, and the, the Two Paths narrative there, the, the story about the narrow way and the broad way, and we learned that our beliefs, our faith commitments are taking us somewhere. They're leading us somewhere. The broad way leads to destruction, and that's the path of the world. The narrow way leads to life, and that's the path of Christ. And being faithful to Christ will not make us popular with this culture. Taking the path of Christ will often put a bullseye on our back. It will force us to go against the grain often of politics and culture and corporate sensibilities. But that's the road of faith. If you're not willing to take up your cross and deny yourself, you cannot be my disciple, Jesus says. Now, we also have to remember the converse of this, or at least the the additional side of this, that we are still called to be salt and light in this world. We're called to be salt and light in this dark, spiritually dark, and morally decaying world. We're called to, to store up our treasures in heaven and not on earth. We're called to put our hope in the Lord and in His promises while knowing that Babylon's days are numbered. And we know this because we see right here in the text that her payback is coming. Look at verse 6, pay her back, heaven says, as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds, mix a double portion for her in the cup that she mixed. Now the sense of this verb is conveyed in our English term recompense. When is the last time someone used the word recompense in a common conversation? No one? Okay, good. That's kind of what I thought recompense. The the, the idea is that you make amends for a loss that's been suffered. A harm has been done and it has been paid back. It carries the idea of payment coming due for crimes or sins committed. And in this case, Babylon is finally going to get what she deserves. She's going to drink a double portion of the cup that she mixed And that might sound odd, right? I mean, if God is just and His judgment is just, why is she set to receive double what what she has doled out? That's not the idea here in this double portion concept. It means that she carried out her sins upon the church. She will receive a just portion of what she poured out. She gave and now is set to receive, and together that makes a double portion. It's language we don't often use. It's prophetic language. But here's the point. Every single one of her sins. Every single time she tempted the people of God. Every single time she lured the people of God or others into her web. Every single time those sins were marked down. Every instance of her corruption, it will be paid back in full. This is the terrible exactness of divine justice. We've already looked this during our worship at the holiness of God and this image here, this picture here, and we've been studying the divine justice of God for for months now as we've been studying through this book, But, but this is what the divine justice looks like. It is perfectly exact. There is no sin that will go unpunished, no lie that will go unaddressed, no temptation that will not be accounted for and Babylon will receive everything that she is due. Verse 7 tells us more. It says as she glorified herself and lived in luxury so give her a like measure of torment and mourning since in her heart she says I sit as a queen I am no widow no widow and mourning I shall never see. Notice that Babylon boasts of her sin. She glorifies herself. She lives in luxury. She calls herself a queen, and she rejects any thought of mourning over what she has done. She has piled high her abominations. As we well know, there's no remorse, no hint of shame, no sorrow for what she's done. And the angel tells us, or at least heaven tells us, for this reason in verse 8, her plagues will come in a single day. All that has happened, all that she has done will be addressed in a single day. Death and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire for mighty is the Lord who has judged her. Brothers and sisters, we know this. We know this from what Scripture teaches over and over and over. The world will face the just punishment for every single sin that it has committed. There will be no sin, great or small, that will go unpunished. Every sinful thought, every action, every deed will be paid in full. So thorough is the divine justice of God. Let that sink into your mind for a moment. So thorough is the divine justice of God. This should be enough to make worldly people shudder at the thought of every one of their transgressions being paid back in full in judgment. And this should also be enough to make every Christian grieve over the sins that we commit. But let's be reminded that we don't grieve the way the world grieves. We don't respond to this reality the way the world would respond we don't grieve over our sins in fear of the day of judgment that is to come we grieve over the fact that we've sinned against our heavenly father we grieve over the fact that we've failed to glorify our savior who loved us and gave himself for us but as believers in christ confronted with our sins and we come together weekly to confess our sins We want to keep a a short list of sins before God. We want to confess those sins and be cleansed of those sins so that we can walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord and, and please Him in every good work and deed, right? But when we do sin and we think on our sin and the exactness of His divine justice, we should be reminded that we don't fear the judgment of God. And the reason we don't fear the judgment of God is because... When the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross, the Bible says that He took upon Himself the sins of all of us and they were nailed to the tree. Jesus didn't just set a good example for us in what sacrificial love looked like. Jesus didn't just die to give us a picture of the love of the Father. No, He died to pay the price, to pay our ransom. He died for every sin we've committed. He died to atone for every thought, word, and deed that was a transgression of the law of God so that now, on this side of faith, on this side of the cross, we don't fear the judgment of God because our judgment was poured out upon Him. And this should not, it must not, it cannot make us lax toward battling against sin. It should give us all the more motivation. To fight against sin because our God has loved us in this way. Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4, this is in his introduction, he reminds us that Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. And what Paul is saying right there is that that we need a Savior. We need to be saved from all of our sins. We need a Savior who can spiritually separate us from the world. We can't can't do this on our own strength. We need Christ to separate us out from the world and to help us escape, to assure us an escape from the destruction that is coming upon it. And friend, you need someone stronger than yourself to lead you in this. Jesus has given Himself to us for this very purpose. He went to Calvary for us. He bore the wrath of God against our sin and He has done this so that you and I as believers in Christ might be fully delivered. The destruction of Babylon is sure to come. And we're going to continue to study this. We'll look at it again next week. It's sure to come. And believers are instructed to get clear of the borders of the city. How do we do this? we've been studying this for weeks and I've been kind of spacing out certain uh, concluding applications for how we can respond to what we're seeing because we're studying the same thing kind of over and over and over again I'm sure you saw that along the way and I'm not trying to diminish the things that we've said in weeks prior but what can we look at today what thought or idea can we take from Scripture that can help us to distance ourselves from the borders of Babylon here's one By keeping our minds fixed on a different kingdom. By keeping our minds fixed on a different kingdom. I mentioned earlier in the introduction that the the book of Revelation is dominated by two cities. You could think about them as two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of Christ and His people. And oftentimes what happens is that on Sunday, we're reminded of the glory of Christ, and we're reminded of the truth of the gospel, and we're, we're reminded of the battle that we're facing, and, and we come here, and we confess our sins, and we celebrate the gospel, and then we go back into the world, and that kingdom of this world just tempts us along the way. So what can you do can, when we do on Monday through Saturday when we can keep our minds fixed on a different kingdom? And Paul helps us out with this. In Colossians chapter 3, he tells us, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul tells us here to fix our minds, to fix our gaze upon Christ and upon His kingdom. And in the context, he's telling us to do this in order to overcome the brokenness of the world, in order to overcome the temptations of Satan. Now, some of us will will try to go about that by deciding that we need to put all of our energy into developing strategies and and ten uh, ten ways that we can do this and, and seven methods to doing this, and we can put all of our energy into developing strategies that can help us avoid this worldly kingdom, and this can very quickly become legalism. Some of you have experienced this, and you can nod and say amen to that. Some of this can very quickly become legalism. And notice that that's not what this passage is teaching us to do. Paul doesn't list out a a dozen ways for us to keep our minds pure. He just tells us, because of who you are in Christ, this is where your mind must go. You don't belong to that kingdom anymore. You belong to this kingdom. This passage teaches us to put our effort into seeking the kingdom above, the kingdom of God, so that there is no room left in our hearts For the world. Notice right out of the gate. I mentioned it. You don't have to turn there. You can. In Colossians 3 verse 1. He says. If then you have been raised with Christ. If then. Since you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. He does not tell us this. He does not say. In order for you to be raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above. And you might think. Well that's not a big deal. Yeah it is. That's the difference between the gospel of grace and the the bad news of human effort, legalism. He doesn't say, in order to seek the things that are above, in order to be raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. He says, because you have been raised with Christ. Did you raise yourself? No. No. That's the work of God in you. We've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. That dead heart that we had in us has been made alive. We've been made alive together with Christ. And this is God's doing. It is His work. And it is all of grace. And because of that, because of what He's done for us, our motivation, our grace-fueled motivation is to seek the One who saved us. This turn of phrase contradicts the legalism that tends to creep in our minds. This passage and many others declare to us that the way to be free from the power of sin is not ultimately through our human effort, but through a grace-fueled longing for more of Jesus. More of Jesus. More of Jesus. If you spend any time with Russ Rice, I promise you, he's told you that. What you need to do is set your your focus on Christ. You need to pursue Him. And He's absolutely right. One of these old dead guys that we like to read, and you should probably pick up a book every now and then by him. His name is John Owen. John Owen says, Fill your affections with the cross of Christ so that there will be no room for sin. We are to put our energy into seeking the things that are above. We are to put our energy into setting our minds on the things that are above. And don't let this confuse you. Paul is not using some mystical language here. I think he's just echoing what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You are not. I am not. We are not going to be able to set our minds on the things above when we close our Bibles on Sunday and we don't pick them up again until we're ready to leave for church the next week. We are going to have to get into the Word to see what our Father is saying to us. I don't think that we're going to continually set our minds on this world when we are constantly looking for ways to hide and indulge in what the world has to offer. We've got to be honest about this battle. We are to seek the kingdom of God. That involves our mind, it involves our heart, it involves our life. We set our mind on the things above when we commit ourselves to seeking God's glory in how we live rather than our own glory. We seek the things that are above and set our mind on the things that are above when we study and obey God's word rather than studying and obeying the dictates and ideals of our culture. We set our mind on the things above when we walk in God's ways rather than walk in the ways of the world. And this means a daily Battle. Remember what I started with that idea of us being at enmity, that the church militant idea? This means that we are going to have a militant effort in wrestling our hearts away from the shiny temptations of 21st century American culture and so that we can fix our eyes and our hearts and our hope upon Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. But that's the battle it's between Christ and the world. Can we do this? Of course we can. It's all over the New Testament. Of course we can. We've been crucified with Christ, Paul tells us in Galatians 2. We've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. By faith, we've been raised to live a new life, a new life in Christ, a new life like Christ. We have the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the people of God to convict us and guide us and help us and encourage us to keep our minds on a heavenly Jerusalem as we flee from the temptations of Babylon like Christian with our fingers stuck in our ears. Are any of us going to do this perfectly? No. No. And we're not called to do it perfectly. We're called to be faithful. Let's do this faithfully. We will stumble along the way. And when we do, God's grace is there to lift us back on our feet. We never grow beyond our need of God's grace in this life or the next. We remember that God's love for us is not based upon our merits. God's love for us is cemented into His grace and we confess our sins to God, maybe we confess our sins to one another, we repent of that sins, we seek the guidance of Scripture, and we refocus our lives on our King and on the kingdom that will not and cannot fall. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us with that. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this passage that we've been studying and learning about and, and Father, I thank you that you have given us this so that we can know what is to come and we can be prepared for it, at least as much as we are willing to prepare ourselves and you are as well. Father, I thank you for this time and I pray, I pray that you would help us this week to keep in mind these truths and to set our minds on you and upon your kingdom and upon your truth. Father, I pray that you would guard us and guide us, that you would accomplish your purpose in us, and that you would help us to walk faithfully. Let this be a day where we turn a corner in our growth and maturity with you so that we come to understand that it's not simply through our human effort and our 10-point methods, but it's by focusing upon Christ that we're going to stay faithful. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.